It's good to see you this morning. We have a scripture reading today. We'll be taken from 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. We'll be reading verses 7 through 10. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations. I think we have the wrong... Oh no, there we are. We have verse 6 was added in there. So we'll begin reading though in verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing revelations. There was given me a thorn in my flesh. A messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then... I am strong. Again, I'd like to remind us as we uh, uh, hear this morning that on Wednesday nights this summer we are going through this series. That slide, it keeps messing up. But anyway, it's Wednesday night. Uh, It begins at uh, 6.30. And we are going to be looking this week at the story of Scripture. And uh, it's, again, this series that we're watching, the Berean Bible Study series, a video uh, for about 20 minutes, and then class discussion following that. And uh, I hope you guys have a great time this Wednesday. Uh, Please be praying for Glenda and I. We will be on the road uh, running down to David Lipscomb University in Nashville for a lectureship uh, that will be Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then we'll return home on Saturday. Uh, So please keep us in your prayers as we're on the road. We're looking forward to, though, the... uh, spiritual feast that awaits us there as we get to uh, crunch all sorts of Bible classes into that short period of time, not to mention reunions with friends from all over the country that we haven't seen in a while. Uh, It's going to be a wonderful time, but we're going to be a little tired when we get back. But we will see you next Sunday for sure. Hey, this is also another day that I think we all want to mark, and, uh, and that is that today is Charlie and Mallory's anniversary. One year ago in this building. <laughs> so we're really excited about that. Also, um, just to let us know, so that, in case, so that you don't miss them this morning, but um, uh, Bridget and Tim Redder are visiting with us today. Uh, and so great to see them again. It's been many years since they moved out to sunny Southern California. Um, but uh, glad to see them today and uh, make sure you get a chance to say hello to them. And they're three kids now. They only had two when they left here. They have three now. So <laughs> really excited to, to see them here again. Once the noted uh, scholar John Stott was going to be preaching at the University of uh, Australia, uh, Sydney in Australia. Uh, and he was a great preacher. He did a lot to help Christianity come out of kind of a church setting and be more evangelistic uh, in, in what he did. And he was holding this meeting on the college campus, reaching out to the students there. And he writes about this experience of the last night of the campaign that they had there. He writes, 
What can you do with a missionary who has no voice? We had come to the last night of this evangelistic campaign. The students had booked the big university hall. A group of students gathered around me, and I asked them to pray as Paul did, that this thorn in the flesh might be taken from me. But we went on to pray that if it pleased God to keep me in weakness, I would rejoice in my infirmities in order that the power of Christ might rest upon me. As it turned out, I had to get within one inch of the microphone and croak out the gospel message. That's what he said. I was unable to use any inflection of the voice to express my personality. I was just able to croak in a monotone voice. All the time we were crying out that God would use his power, that it would be demonstrated through his human weakness. Well, he writes, I can honestly say that there was a far greater response that night than any other night. I've been back to Australia ten times now. And on every occasion, somebody has come up to me and said, do you remember that night when you lost your voice? I was converted that night. You know, of all the churches that Paul planted, perhaps no other church was as troubled as the church in Corinth. Um, he got, they got two letters. Uh, and in reality, we think they got three letters and a proposed third visit by Paul as well. We know that they did not understand everything like they should. They did not understand uh, what it meant to be pure. They did not understand uh, what it meant to be in the world but not of the world as they struggled with their relationship with the pagan world around them that they had left in order to come into Christ. We know that they misused their spiritual gifts. And we also know that they're being led away by false teachers who are putting down Paul in order to lift themselves up. Our passage today comes at the climax of his defense against these false teachers who called themselves super apostles. You know, they went to great lengths to just talk about their superiority over this guy, Paul. Indeed, some believe that we have in this exchange in this letter some understanding about what Paul's thorn in the flesh that we just read about was. Some believe that this is especially seen in criticism that Paul repeats in chapter 10, verse 10. There he said, they say, or Paul writes their words, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Then in 11, chapter 11, verse 6, uh, they write, even if I, or he writes, even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. What was Paul's thorn in the flesh? Some say it was that he was deformed in some way, maybe hunchback or short. Uh, maybe he was lame in the way he walked. Others say he had a speech impediment. Maybe he stuttered or just had trouble expressing himself verbally. My opinion falls more towards the latter. Uh, and specifically that he was not a trained orator. If you go back and study the ancient classics, you know that the Greeks put a lot of store on being able to speak publicly and in certain very classic forms that were trained at that time. Literally, they would stuff their mouths full of pebbles. This sounds funny. 
uh, and they would train to be able to speak clearly even with their mouth full of pebbles. Uh, that's how important it was to them that they speak well. Paul wasn't sophisticated like they were, I feel. And so they considered that to be deficient. Paul didn't speak as well as he should have. Imagine having received this wonderful deep revelation from the Lord and have people reject it simply because you lisp. You speak with a lisp. Wouldn't that be frustrating? Can't you understand why Paul would want it removed so badly so that the full message of what he had to give, what he had to offer, could be given? We don't know for sure what the thorn of the flesh was. But we do know that God's answer was, no, I will not remove it. But I will help you, Paul, understand that I can even work through your weaknesses. You know, John Stott, I think, felt the same way. He felt like he had one hand tied behind his back as he was trying to croak out those words of the gospel in a whisper. There's something that he forgot. He forgot that though his hand may have been tied, God's word is unbound and powerful. It was that sermon croaked out in that whisper that God used so powerfully. Speaking as someone who uses his voice professionally, I can tell you that it helps to have a good voice. It gets people's attention. They'll give you a listen if your voice sounds good, but you still have to back it up with substance. Your message still has to make sense. It helps if you have the gift of gab, but you also need to be able to have meaning to what you say. Substance. Because if you don't have that, people will walk away starved and longing for something that is more lasting. Paul had the substance, but he couldn't get the people to listen to him because of the delivery. But you know, God is more interested in the substantive than in the good sounding. And we need to remember that when we start to compare ourselves to those around us, when we start to compare ourselves to those that we say have a better style maybe, or better uh, understanding, or better uh, delivery, the outside shell may look good, but the substance has to be there. And you know, the world often makes us feel like, as Christians, that we don't really have anything to offer. I don't know how many times I've heard critics of Christianity belittle the intelligence and the sophistication of Christians. Not that they're being very original at all. Back in the second century, pagan critics of Christianity did the same thing. One in particular's name was Celsus. And he said that Christians were only converting the weak. They were only converting the poor, the slaves, sorry women, and the women and the children. You know, what's interesting, though, is that it was not true back then, those criticisms, nor is it true today. We are not weak as Christians. We simply choose to express our strength in ways that are counter to the world's wisdom. But when we jump down into the gutter with the world and begin using their tactics, we will inevitably end up slimed and indistinguishable from them. You know, when I look at some of the religious folks in the world out there, 
who put on the trappings of wealth and then claim that God wants Christians to be wealthy. I see someone who is indistinguishable from the guy running the infomercial on getting rich on rental properties. The fact of the matter is, folks, that they are the only ones getting rich. The power of God is not shown when we are triumphant and successful as the world counts those things. We are powerful when we are weak. And this happens when we stop seeking worldly approval and desire only to please God. When we stop trying to earn our salvation simply and instead simply trust in the great grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Until we get that concept knocked down deep into our noggins, all of our effort will take us nowhere with God. Our only reward will be what we have in the here and in the now, at least until theft or illness take those even away from us. You know, Chuck Colson, for my generation, was a very famous individual. He was caught up in the famous water break, Watergate scandals and the break-in, and eventually that eventually brought down the uh, presidential administration of Nixon. Ultimately, this powerful leader in that White House ended up in prison. Listen how Chuck Colson talks about how God used his life. He says, the great paradox of my life is that every time I walk into a prison and see the faces of men or women who have been transformed by the power of the living God, I realize that the thing God has chosen to use in my life is none of the successes, achievements, degrees, awards, honors, or cases that I won before the Supreme Court. That is not what God is using in my life. What God is using in my life to touch the lives of literally thousands of other people is the fact that I was a convict and went to prison. That was my great defeat, the only thing in my life that I didn't succeed in. God's way of working in the world is made clear in his dealing with his chosen people, Israel. You know, in Lamentations, the third chapter, verses 21 through 26, we see Israel at the lowest point that they were in. The northern kingdom had been obliterated years ago. Now Judah was being carried off into captivity. Low doesn't get much lower than where the Jews found themselves as Jeremiah writes these words of his lament. There he writes, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassion never, compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope in him, whose hope is in him. To the one who seeks him, it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Many of you recognize the verses the steadfast of the Lord is, uh, never ceases, his mercies never come to an end. You know, we sing that song, and it's a nice light song, it's beautiful and airy, and we forget the context that it was written in. At the lowest ebb, Jeremiah is still able to write this. And by the way, Jewish tradition tells us that Jeremiah's message was not very well taken. 
Uh, in the end, Jeremiah is made the scapegoat for all the things that they did not want to see go wrong. Uh, and eventually, if tradition holds true, he was sawed in two uh, by his opponents. Israel may have been defeated, but God was not. That was the message that Jeremiah was putting out there. He may have been at the bottom of the barrel looking up, but he refused to let go of God's great grace that he believed in. You see this also in the prophet Habakkuk, writing during the same terrible time, writing with the same sentiments. In chapter 3, verses 17 and 19, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Thank you. <laughs> um, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Yet will I rejoice in the Lord? In the face of all this, when the worst possible thing happens, I'll rejoice in the Lord? As God lets the other nations destroy his people, I'll rejoice in the Lord? I can almost see the people of Israel, how they were responding. How could God let this happen? If he's such an all-powerful God, how could he let this happen? You know, when we talk like this, you know what's happening, don't you? You know what's really talking? Our pride is what's talking. Our sense of entitlement is what's talking. If we'd step back and instead humble ourselves and try to understand what God is doing for us, even in the worst of times, it can change our whole attitude. If we take time to, as the song goes, counter many blessings, name them one by one, they're not just material blessings. They're spiritual blessings. And we'll find that the Lord has done more for us than we could possibly count. But our pride says, well, we want God to look good. And, you know, God looks good if we look good because when the people see us, they see the Lord. That's good reasoning, isn't it? But it doesn't quite hold true. Because not everybody can be rich. Amen? Amen. Not going to happen. We fool ourselves if we think it's going to happen. And yet the Lord says he can work through all of us. Whatever our limitations are. I don't need a nice home and a million dollar retirement account. I'd sure like that, but that's probably not what I'm going to have and not what I really need. Now, I don't begrudge you, by the way, if you have that. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. That's a blessing that you have to bear and answer to the Lord for. What you and I need, no matter what our circumstances in life are, is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. We need to share in his suffering and conform to his death. Then after we have poured out our life, God will fill it with his Holy Spirit. And what we will experience is joy following that suffering and life eternal following death. We all have a thorn in the flesh. What is ours?
Think about that for a moment. Honestly, let's take a moment of quiet and just think about what is your thorn in the flesh? I bet it didn't take long. Did you get one? Did you get two? I got more than, well, never mind. I won't tell you how many I've got. (laughs) Um, You know, we all have them, don't we? God's power, God's power can be perfected in your life in spite of whatever thorn you identified. Whatever thorn in your eye has hobbled you to not be effective in the kingdom of God. All you have to do is bring it to God. Go to him first. You know, the text says that Paul prayed three times that the thorn be taken away. I think that's kind of a bit of hyperbole there, uh, or symbolic. I think that's probably not his first set of three times that he had talked to the Lord about taking this thorn in the flesh away. You see, I know that prayer that Paul prayed. And I have heard God answer me in a similar way. No, it's not through your power that I make great. It is through my power working in you. You know, if God had taken away Paul's thorn, it still would have been God's power, not Paul, that had produced the results that they did. So God let that thorn stay and fester and pester Paul as a reminder that the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not in us, but in Christ himself. And that power can be ours if we will only humble ourselves and accept his grace. And what is more humble than dying to ourselves? And we've able to witness uh, the baptisms uh, here in the last few weeks of, of three of our children. And that is wonderful. And part of that symbolism is dying to ourselves, being buried with Christ, and then being raised again to the newness of life. That is what we're called to do. Die to ourselves. Die to those worldly desires. To have the worldly trappings. And instead, live for Christ. Humiliating ourselves by confessing that we cannot do it ourselves. We cannot save ourselves, but we need Jesus Christ to do that. And to admit that Jesus has absolute sovereignty over my life. Absolute control. His words become my orders in this life. It's not an easy thing to do. You know, it's humbling to get wet as we practice baptism through full immersion. And I can see where some people might say, well, why don't we just let baptism be a metaphor instead? Just something we kind of talk about. Then we can just pray Jesus into our heart without getting wet, without humbling ourselves in front of everybody. But if we will do that, humbling ourselves, God will take us and transform us into something greater. I use baptism as an example of that, but we humble ourselves in many other ways as we go through this life and follow God's commands. Sometimes in ways that go counter to what the world expects us to do. It's humbling. It's difficult. But if we will do this, if we will humble ourselves, he will transform us. Now, there won't be any big ticker tape parades 
for us. Uh, down, you know, the big avenue in New York City with all the trash flying everywhere. <laughs> we won't even be given the key to the city. Matter of fact, folks, the key to the city is going to look a lot more like that than it is the ceremonial keys they hand out. For Christians, that is the key to the kingdom right there. The crown that our Savior wore. The greatest demonstration of God's power that has ever been seen is not something that we have to wait to see. It happened 2,000 years ago when God humbled himself and became man, took on flesh. The crowning achievements of God's power happened on the day that Jesus Christ was given the crown of thorns. When he was whipped, beaten, nailed to the cross, Jesus, or, or Satan, I mean, was dancing a jig, wasn't he? But he was dancing that jig on thin ice. For on that cross, God accomplished his greatest act of power. He forgave all our sins. Then on the third day, on Sunday, that's why we meet on Sundays for worship, why this time should be kept holy to the Lord. On Sunday, he conquered death when by his power, Jesus rose from the grave. At that moment, the moment of his death, the world felt victorious, powerful, triumphant. But it was a misguided, hollow victory. For God had used weakness powerfully. Don't think that you have to get your life together, by the way, before you can offer it to God. You never will. That's part of humbling ourselves, admitting we cannot do it. Don't think that you have to achieve some level of perfection before you can be worthy of God's grace. Our achievements don't earn God's grace. It's a free gift given to us by faith in Jesus Christ. Bring yourselves to God. Bring your thorns. Bring all to him. And he will blossom in your life through his son, Jesus Christ, and our Savior. You see, the cross is to those who are dying the fragrance of death. But it's to those who are being saved the aroma of life. What are we going to do with this word today? This word that lets us know that God's power is ready to be applied in our lives. God's power is ready to be ready to transform us into new beings. That's a question only you can answer. That's a question that only you can uh, decide how to do it. I want to encourage you to take that time today to let the Lord transform you. If as a Christian you are struggling in your walk with Christ, don't struggle alone. Ask the church for prayers. Ask an individual Christian for prayers to help you. If as a seeker you have come here today and you're wanting to know the Lord better, you're wanting to uh, become a child of his through faith in Christ, we will assist you with that by helping you be obedient to his command to be baptized, where you'll be buried in the waters with Christ, raised, forgiven of sin, a new life, a new life that is not powered by our own achievements, but it is powered by the achievement that God won on that cross when Jesus died for us. 
Whatever your need, won't you come to him today as we stand and as we sing?